want to welcome you all again one more time. Um, <laughs> I knew I'd be preaching to all of you, and so in my mind as I'm going over my sermon, I'm, I'm looking at all of you in my mind, and now you're here today, uh, and, and my joy is no less. It's good to be with you all today. As I thought about what I wanted to preach on today, I knew I wanted to speak on something that would be a benefit for both of our congregations, meaning Sovereign Joy and Faith Community, as we are in the process of merging with one another. Um, and if you didn't know that, well, now you know, all right? Although I find that uh, the word has kind of gone far and wide. Many people who I, I think, they won't know. I, th I think everybody already knows, right? So I thought to myself, perhaps I might pray on the great need for wisdom, since we need a lot of wisdom in this process. Or perhaps I thought I might preach on the need to be constant in prayer, relying on the Spirit throughout this process. And yet again and again, my mind kept going back to the first verse of Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And I thought that that would be a very fitting theme today. Since today is not only, partly, about cultivating a future unity that by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we hope to have one day in fullness as a new congregation. But it's also about celebrating the unity that we already have together, even as two separate congregations in Jesus Christ. A unity that we have, even if you're not in either of the two churches that are talking about merging. We have unity with you here today as well. This psalm expresses not Merely a unity of members of a particular congregation, though that certainly has application, but rather the scope is much broader. David envisions a bond and a unity that encompasses all the members of the body of Christ. Furthermore, the unity described in this passage is much more than perhaps what we sometimes mean by that term. Sometimes we speak of unity to refer to a time when a church exists in peace and without divisions. I thank God that this kind of unity exists now in our respective churches. That we, although not perfect, are not rent asunder by divisions and schisms and factions. Nevertheless, the kind of unity that is described in this passage is so profound. It runs so deep that even when the unity of peace does not exist in a particular church, when its members are backbiting and are in many ways at war with one another, nevertheless, this bond is not undone. It can't be undone by man because it was not made by man. Rather, the unity, the true depths of it, that David speaks of in this psalm, it goes so deep because it is not just a mere existence of peace in the life of a church, but he speaks of a true, spiritual, mystical union with one another in Jesus Christ. This is why even though the church at Corinth, though full of factions and divisions, yet in many ways, Paul still reminds them they are one in Jesus Christ. They had not undone the bond of their unity, though they were acting in many ways contrary to it, and they were not cultivating it, but they had not undone it. They had not destroyed it. 
That's the depth of the unity that is in sight in this psalm. And so this psalm is particularly fitting as a meditation for two churches or any church that is gathering here today. I wasn't expecting this many visitors today. But it is particularly fitting as a meditation for two churches which are hoping to merge one day because ultimately the unity of peace as one congregation which we hope by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to achieve, that unity will only come and be preserved if we have it in the forefront of our hearts and minds of how deeply we are already bonded together in Jesus Christ. In those moments when we might be tempted to separate, when we think this is too much work, this is too hard, the reminder of the fact of just how deep our union runs. Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, that will keep us to press on and persevere and cultivate and nurture that union. Well, that being said, let's turn to our text now and get a sight for ourselves of just how deep our union runs together. Beginning in verse 1, it says, A song of ascents of David. Now, whenever you study the Psalms, one thing that you want to see if you can discern from the text is the occasion of its composition. You can find that it often really enriches not only your, your understanding, but, but the preaching of the psalm as well. Now, some of the psalms tell us their occasion in what we call the superscription. If you see in our psalm, it says a song of a sense of David. We call that the superscription. Some, psalm, some psalms tell us the occasion of their composition. For example, Psalm 51, a great song of repentance and confession, says it was composed, quote, when Nathan the prophet went to David after he'd gone into Bathsheba. And just that little bit of information serves as such a rich backdrop for everything that David says as he pours out his heart in that psalm. Most psalms do have superscriptions of some sort, but they often don't give us any more information than perhaps the name of the author or the, the name of the tune to which they were sung. And in those cases, it is left to us to fill in the gaps, if possible, from the content of the psalm itself. And that is the case with our own psalm today. Because of the theme of unity in this passage, many commentators throughout the centuries have suggested that perhaps David was inspired to rejoice over the unity of God's people because maybe they had just gone through a time of political division turmoil, and civil unrest. Perhaps it is suggested that David wrote this after the long war between the house of David and the house of Saul was over. If you remember, when David first became king, he was not king of all Israel. He was king for the first seven and a half years of his reign only over the tribe of Judah. This was a period of great division, brother killing brother during this time, it tells us in 2 Samuel, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Eventually, however, David is made king over all the tribes of Israel. The long period of brother killing brother is over. And so perhaps it is, uh, perhaps it is suggested David, filled with joy over the peace and unity of the people of God, composes this psalm. It's a possibility. Others suggest that the occasion for the composition was the ending of the rebellion of Absalom. It had been put down by David. I suppose that could also be the case. Whether or not either of these were the occasion, 
And whether or not the occasion of this psalm was the peace after a long period of unrest, nevertheless, we can all say here today, it is true that peace and unity are much sweeter to those who have experienced unrest and division. David Dixon comments on this psalm and says, those are most fit to put a price and right estimation upon peace and concord who have seen and felt the evil of discord and contention. Brothers and sisters, there are churches today where they could not bring themselves to sing Psalm 133 because they are simply a war zone. Some of you have come from such churches in the past. In fact, from what I can gather, both of our respective congregations in their history have had long periods of division, really hard times with with church meetings of hours and hours where you want nothing else but to be anywhere else in the world. Now the unity that we have tastes all that much sweeter, doesn't it? As we look back upon the division. Perhaps it is that David, with the same thought, composed this psalm. What we can say for certain about this psalm is that it is, as it says, a song of ascents, or a song that would be sung by Israelites as they made their pilgrim journey to Jerusalem to worship with the people of God at the temple. They're called songs of ascents because you are ascending to Mount Zion. You are going up together, and so these are songs you would sing on the way. While there may have been a period of unrest before this, I think that it is particularly this event, the gathering of the people of God together to come to the temple of God upon the mountain of God to worship God together that was the particular inspiration for this psalm. These gatherings would be times of great joy and excitement that you would look forward to all year long. On the one hand, the main reason why they were a great joy is because you come to worship God. You come to have fellowship with God. You give your offerings. You give your thanksgiving sacrifices. If you had made vow, made vows in the previous time, you would come then to give your vow offerings to the Lord. It was a time of great rejoicing. We're told, in fact, in Deuteronomy 14, that when the annual tithe was to be brought to the temple, for those Israelites who lived too far away to carry uh, their tithe, whether it was wheat or something, it was, it was just... It wouldn't last the journey. It was too far. God tells them they could exchange their tithe for money. And then it says they can, quote, spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. On the one hand, these were great times of rejoicing and excitement because you're coming to worship with God and God's worship is not boring. On the other hand, this is a time of great joy and excitement because you saw friends and family that you had not seen perhaps in weeks or months, perhaps in some cases for longer than that. You know, with, it's kind of funny. In many ways, we're more connected than we've ever been on social media. And yet, in many ways, our relationships are perhaps more shallow than they've ever been in any other time in human history. In many ways, through Facebook, we are fairly regularly well-informed of the major goings-on 
of the lives of our friends and family members, even though they, they live across the world. I've seen little videos on, on things even this morning of friends opening presents. We're kind of well-informed. Back then, you didn't have that. You didn't know how your friends or family were if they lived farther in another region. You didn't know how it was well with them. Perhaps the last time you saw them, they were going through a difficult issue. You've been wondering and praying, and then you make out their face in the crowd. You raise your hand. You call out to them. You rush to one another. You give a hug. Oh, these are times of great joy. I almost wonder if little kids would grow up, little, you know, little kids from different tribes, some kids from the tribe of Benjamin, you know, some from Issachar, they would see one another only whenever they came there and they would play with one another and then they grew up their whole lives seeing one another and so you'd just see each other and there would be so much joy. This reminds me of our association meetings in many ways. We see our brothers there. There's great joy. You know, when women see one another, they cry and say, I love you. Men insult one another. I saw David Bain coming in today, and I'm sorry, sorry, sir. We have a strict no redneck policy at this church. You're going to have to turn around and leave. But we do that because that's how we express our love and our joy. There's a silliness. There's a giddiness. There's a great joy as our hearts are, are overflowing so much we have to insult one another. Many scenes like that would be taking place in Jerusalem. Many scenes like those that have been here this afternoon, as we've seen one another as well. And so you take all that together, the joyful worshiping of God, the reuniting of friends and family, and you can almost just imagine David taking all this in, coming home perhaps after, after a day that he had worshiped in the temple, having dinner with friends and family, coming home with his heart just overflowing and thinking, I need to write something down. And he grabs a quill and parchment and he just says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David describes those who dwell together as brothers. And yet it seems to me that what David means by brother here is much more than ethnic or tribal or clan brothers. There were indeed many brothers united in those ways, but it appears to me that the brotherhood that David has in mind is a spiritual brotherhood. It's a brotherhood founded upon God. We see this namely in the metaphors that David will go on to give, which we will look at in more detail lately. When he describes this brotherhood, he uses spiritual imagery in the metaphors. It's not just any oil that is poured upon Aaron. It's the special anointing oil. And it's Aaron, the high priest, who ministers in the temple. And the dew that falls from heaven doesn't fall anywhere but upon the mountains of Zion where the temple of God is. And upon the temple is not just where any kind of life exists, but life evermore. These are the things that ultimately define this brotherhood, God and his worship and his blessings. They were from different tribes, different clans, different regions. They spoke with different accents and dialects. They had different callings. They were of different socioeconomic backgrounds, and yet they were brothers, 
because their brotherhood transcended all those things as it was centered upon God. So also for us, brothers and sisters, and even, as I say, brother and sister, I mean brother and sister with the same Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be many other ways in which we share bonds with one another. Some here are men. That's a bond. Some are women. Some come from different places. Sorry to tell you, Texans, there's a lot of Californians in here today, right? Some of us were blessed to be born in California. We're blessed to no longer live there as well. Some of us have different kinds of ethnic bonds. Hispanic, white, Asian, black. Some share similar bonds of occupation. Many of these are tight bonds. In fact, some of these are so tight that people in the world find their ultimate identity in those things. That is their deepest bond. For some people, their occupation. For some, their race. For some, where they come from. That is the ultimate thing. That's as deep as it goes. For us, at the end of the day, what defines us? What is the basis of our union together? It's none of those things. But rather, our union is founded upon God and Jesus Christ. Paul explains this several times to the early Christians, and he says so in such emphatic terms. For example, he says to the Colossians in Colossians 3.11, Here is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all. Or Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor, Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice how strong his language is. Here there is not Greek and Jew. He doesn't just say, now look, your primary identity is not Greek or Jew. He says, there's no Greek or Jew here. Which is really funny, because later in just the very next chapter of the same epistle, Paul goes to mark out who is Greek and who is Gentile in his epistles. He'll make little references. Onesimus, our faithful brother, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? Or Epaphras, who is one of you? Meaning that they come from Colossae, but also that they're Gentiles. And then without skipping a beat, he'll say, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Yet in the previous chapter, here there is not Greek and Jew. What he means by this is what he says at the very end. Christ is all. Christ is all. In other words, we may have and do have many other identities and bonds with many other people, and those are not necessarily bad. They're often uh, just they're great gifts from God that you can share, and yet in the kingdom, those are so eclipsed. They are so swallowed up by Christ as to be, in a certain sense, by comparison, non-existent. Christ and God is what defines our brotherhood together. And yet, when we look back at verse 1 of Psalm 133, we see that David has not merely said that these brothers 
are good and pleasant, but that it is good and pleasant that these brothers dwell in unity. Now, the real emphasis of verse 1 in the Hebrew, in many ways we could say perhaps of the whole psalm, since verses 2 and 3 are really just expanding their analogies for verse 1, right? But the real emphasis, if you could say there's a punch anywhere, is at the very end of verse 1, particularly in the phrase which is translated as in unity. It is preceded by another Hebrew word, uh, uh, the term gam, gam. Gam here functions as what we call an intensifier. It intensifies whatever follows after it. In English, a very common intensifier that we use is the word even, even. For example, Psalm 53.3, there is none who does good, not even one. The psalmist could have said, there is none who does good, not one. But he says, not even one. I couldn't even find one. It intensifies just how hard it is. In fact, there is no one who does good. Another way we often translate this word is by simply adding the words yes or no, depending on whether it's negative or positive. In fact, if we consider again Psalm 53, 3, but we read the King James Version, it says just that. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. It's as if the psalmist is stopping. He's saying, no, not one. It intensifies it. Well, something like that should really be at the end of our sentence in verse 1. And if I were to give my own translation, the Ryan Hodson version of the Bible, it would say something along the lines of, Behold, and how, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together, yes, in unity. Or perhaps we could take the old Geneva Bible version, which says, Behold how good and comely a thing it is, brethren, to dwell even together. The point that David wants to express is the unity with which these brethren are dwelling. They are one. In fact, although we'll look at this more a bit later fully, I think one of the reasons why David references Aaron in the next verse is because Aaron as one man is a picture of the unity of all the people of God. So united are there, it is as if they are one man. And theologically, that adds up with the fact that he is the high priest. The high priest in one person represents all the people of God. When he goes into the temple of God, wearing the, um, the golden plate, it has all the names of the people of God. He is, as it were, representing all Israel in one man. And so also these brothers, though many, are united as to be one. You know, Scripture often speaks that way of the unity of the church, that they are one, particularly in soul, together. For example, we read of the church in Acts 42. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment or Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm 
in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Or lastly, Romans 15, 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In all of these, the church is said to be one. Not as though we cease to have our own individual existence, but rather that in our minds, in our hearts, we are one and united. We think the same about the same things. We have the same judgment. We come to the similar we come to similar conclusions. We have the same gospel knowledge in our hearts and in our minds. We have as it were one will. We desire the same things. We have affections for the same things. We love the same things. We reject and abhor the same things. We weep over the same things. Our hearts are grieved by the same things. And if one suffers, as Paul says, all suffer together. John Gill says of verse 1, Psalm 133, to dwell together in unity is to be even as one man, as if one soul actuated them all. It is not merely to dwell and abide in the house of God where they have all a name and a place, but to associate together, to go up to the house of God in company, and with delight to join together in acts of worship, to serve the Lord with one consent, one mind, and one mouth to glorify God, to be of one accord, having the same love, bearing one another's burdens, sympathizing with each other, forgiving one another, praying with one another, building up each other in their most holy faith. This is both good and pleasant. I pray that we may be one, brothers and sisters. And I don't just say that in the sense of the merge. I pray for all of us in our respective congregations that we would be one of heart and mind. May this be our unity here, a unity of mind and will and affections, a unity of hands that serve, feet that carry the gospel, mouths that sing the praises of God, and eyes that weep together. You know, brothers and sisters, there is nothing perhaps that shines so brightly in the world as a testimony to the gospel as when the people of God dwell together in unity. And by contrast, I can think of nothing more which brings so much reproach upon the gospel of God as when the people of God are divided and have no love for one another. The early church father, Tertullian, describes the unity of the church in his day in a work titled An Apology or a Defense. It was written during a time when Christians were very hated and persecuted. Keep that in mind. He says, we are a body knit together as such by common religious profession, by unity of discipline, and by the bond of a common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as with united force we may wrestle with him in our supplications. Of their offerings, he says, 
These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund, for they are not spent on feasts and drinking and eating, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of mothers and of old persons confined now to the house. And if there be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. For themselves are animated by mutual hatred, and they are angry with us because we call each other brethren for no other reason, I think, than because among themselves the name of brother is a mere pretense of affection. So he can say that even at a time when the church is hated and persecuted, Nevertheless, their love for one another, the world marvels at that. See how they love one another. And yet, by contrast, when we are disunited, oh, when people hear the message of peace and love from the church and come in hoping to find that, to find no different than the world, oh, what a reproach upon the gospel of Christ. What hypocrisy, what lofty words with nothing else to support them. And yet, brothers and sisters, David still has more to say about this unity. It is still deeper and more profound than what has been said up to this point. In fact, there is a profound mystical reason why we are of one heart and one mind, which we still have to see in this passage. Look back with me at verses 2 and 3. David says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, as I said earlier, by referencing these things, the anointing oil, the high priest, Mount Zion, life evermore, we see that this is a spiritual brotherhood that is founded upon God. And yet, I don't think that that is the only reason why David chooses these specific metaphors. In fact, I I think he chooses them very specifically to say something quite profound about our unity. Well, why does he choose them? On the one hand, perhaps most simply, we could say he chooses these things partly because they are good and pleasant just like brothers dwelling in unity. Oil in the ancient world was a good and pleasant thing. Proverbs 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad. Or Psalm 45 and Isaiah 61 both speak of the oil of gladness. Similarly, not only is oil related to the goodness of life, but in Scripture and in the ancient world, it was often seen as healing and having life-giving properties as well. For example, in Luke 10, the good Samaritan treats the wounds of the man who had been attacked with oil and wine. Similarly, dew is a good thing. Now, we might only think of rain as that which, which, which brings uh, life to plants and all that around us, but dew actually makes up a very big part of that. Because of that, it often represents life and the richness of life in Scripture. 
For example, in Genesis 27, when Jacob blesses Isaac, he says, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Mount Hermon, which is mentioned here, is a mountain in the far north of Israel. And in fact, today it sits on the border between Lebanon and Israel, but it is famous for its precipitation even today. For most of the year, it is capped with snow, and it has a very, very heavy dew. In fact, John Gill records the account of a medieval Englishman who traveled there and said that one morning when he and his party woke up, their tents were as wet as if it had rained, simply by the dew. Here, the same heaviness of life-giving dew is said to be upon the mountains of Zion. And so oil and dew are good and pleasant. They both have life-giving properties, which I think also connects with what David says at the end of verse 3, namely that at Zion the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. Ultimately, however, I think the main reason why David uses these specific metaphors is because they're pictures of the Holy Spirit. For example, the oil that verse 2 speaks of is anointing oil. And throughout the Old Testament and even the New, being anointed with oil to service, uh, in service to God is a picture of being anointed with the Holy Spirit. In fact, they often went together. When you were anointed, then it says the Spirit rushed upon you. First Samuel 16, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. Therefore, Christ says, as prophesied in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This fits quite well with the imagery of dew, since oftentimes the Spirit is spoken of as life-giving water, which brings new life to previously lifeless and desolate places. We see this especially in Isaiah Isaiah 44.3, I will pour water on the, on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 32.15, the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And so I think David is choosing these metaphors because he's specifically evoking imagery of the Holy Spirit. But then this leads us to ask, okay, what does that teach us about unity, right? The Holy Spirit, how does this teach us anything about unity? I think the answer lies in the verb that is used both for the oil and the dew, namely that they go downward as to cover everything. It's the same verb in Hebrew. It really kind of pops out at you. For example, verse 2, it is like precious oil on the head running down, yoreid, in Hebrew, yoreid, on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down, yoreid, on the collar of his robes. So the oil starts at the top, and it works its way down even to his robes so that effectively all of Aaron is covered, as it were, with the oil. I think David is giving us here a picture of Christ, our great high priest and head, and the oil of the Spirit which flows from Christ, our head to the whole body. 
Benjamin Keats says, Christ, the holy and spiritual head, received the consecration from God, for he was filled with the Holy Ghost from the womb. And this holy unction descended on him as it did on the head of Aaron, not only drenching his beard, but all the parts of his body also, even to the skirts of his garments. Similarly, in verse 3, it says, The unity of the brethren is like the dew of Hermon, which falls, yoreid, on the mountains of Zion. Just as the Spirit, like oil, cascades downward upon the whole body of Christ, so the Spirit, like dew from heaven, waters and covers, as it were, all the mountains of Zion. Again, Keech notes, Christ abides within the limits of his church and walks in the midst of golden candlesticks. And the graces of the Spirit fall upon Mount Hermon as the dew descends upon the, mount, the mountains of Zion. And so, brothers and sisters, having been digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the nature of our union and fellowship with one another, guess what? We've hit the bedrock. We found just how deep it goes. We've hit the foundation. Jesus Christ. We read earlier that John Gill says that to dwell together in unity is to be even as one man, and yet in Christ we truly are one in Him. This is why we have one mind. Do you know why? We have the mind of Christ. This is why we are of one heart. Do you know why? Because we have the heart of Christ. This is why the same things grieve us. Do you know why? Because they grieve Christ, and He dwells within us. In fact, when Paul says, here is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, he follows it up with, and in all. Our confession makes clear in chapter 27 on the communion of saints that by our union with Christ, we are, quote, not made there by one person with him. In other words, we, we don't cease to exist, although scripture sometimes uses that language. It is no longer I who live but Christ in me, right? Nevertheless, our two persons may be said to be one in a real mystical and spiritual union that takes place between Christ and his bride as they have become one flesh. There's a great book, if you're looking for a great book, or if you just got all this Christmas money and you're like, I need more books, right? Here's your first purchase. It's a book, you can find it by Reformation Heritage Books by Girolamo Zanke. And it's titled, The Spiritual Marriage Between Christ and His Church and Every One of the Faithful. It was born out of his studies of the book of Ephesians, where Paul famously says that marriage is a great mystery and a picture of Christ and His bride. He says about our union with Christ, Zanke does, our union with Christ and of Christ with us is essential and substantial, true and real. It is substantial because the very substances of Christ's flesh and of our flesh, of Christ's person and of our persons, are made one. But it is not merely that we gain the fruits that come from Christ, for they cannot be gained without gaining the substance of Christ himself. Moreover, we call the union true and real, because we are not made one merely in the imagination, but rather actually with Christ and united, we grow more and more into one body, in its manner, however, the union is not physical, but spiritual and supernatural. This brings us then to the role of the Spirit, of 
Christ is the head, how does the spirit picture, picture into this, this picture? <laughs> Zanke goes on to say of the spirit that it is by the spirit that we are united to Christ our head. Commenting on Romans 8, 9, whoever does not have the spirit of Christ is not Christ's. He says, therefore, we are made members of Christ, truly of the bridegroom and flesh of his flesh by way of the spirit by whom he incorporates himself to us and us to him. This is why so often in the New Testament, it is particularly the Holy Spirit that is associated with the communion of the saints, with koinonia. You see this all over the place. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship or koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Philippians 2, 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, koinonia, in the Spirit. Or Ephesians 4, 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, brothers and sisters, the same Spirit of God which dwells in you dwells in the same, or not the same, but dwells in the believer sitting right beside you. It dwells in me as I speak these words, and it dwells in each and every one of us here who is in Christ. It dwells with us when our congregations are separate, are separated by distance on different Sundays. We don't have two different spirits, we have one and the same. It is the same spirit which causes all other saints throughout the whole world to utter their praises to God. And you know what? It is the same Spirit which is united with all the saints that have gone to be with the Lord. Just as we are united as we sit together this morning, death has not severed that bond between us and those who have gone to be with the Lord. We're still one in Jesus Christ, and the Spirit communicates Christ and all of His graces to each and every one of us. That is the depth of our union, brothers and sisters. That is why, even when we are at war with one another, even when we are acting contrary to that union, our bond is not severed. It was not made by man. It cannot be destroyed by man. It was made by God. Well, lastly, having discovered the bedrock of our union, let us now turn to some application. First, let us give thanks. Let us ourselves marvel, as David does in this psalm, not only that Christ has received us, but that he has received us into his body. You know, one of the tragic effects of the fall is that disunity ensued. It's actually part of the pronouncement of the curse. The only society that existed before the fall was Adam and Eve, and there was no sweeter marriage there was no sweeter union and fellowship and love and service. What do they do immediately after the fall? They throw each other under the bus. God pronounces, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. In Titus 3.3, Paul describes our time before Christ as, quote, being hated by others and hating one another. And yet now we've been made one in Christ. And yet here we should also note the means by which Christ has accomplished this. His death, the blood of the cross. Indeed, Christ was anointed with the Spirit beyond measure. 
but he was also anointed by Mary for his death. As he said in Mark 14, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Like by, by his cross, Paul says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So our first response is to try to take that in. <laughs> Ask that the Lord would impress that upon your heart. The second application is to examine ourselves. Do we love the brethren? You want to know the greatest litmus test of whether you love Christ or not? You want to know the great bellwether? If you're interested, I wonder how much do I love Jesus? Look at how much you love the body of Jesus. There you will find your love for Christ. John says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Let us consider our words to one another, our actions, even our secret thoughts and attitudes. For in whatever manner we treat one another, Christ says that so we have treated him because we have treated his body thus. He says that on the day of judgment, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And that's not just some kind of pie-in-the-sky sentiment. It's truly done to the body of Christ, and so it is done to Christ. This is why Christ says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my church? Perhaps some of us here today might receive a rebuke from the Lord. Why are you so impatient with me? Why are you so loveless towards me? Why do you never show any hospitality to, to me? We would say, oh Lord, when was I impatient with you? When was I loveless? When did I never share any kind of hospitality with you? And he might say, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. May we love one another, brothers and sisters. May we love Christ and love Christ in one another. May we heed the exhortation of Paul to the Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all 
and in all. If we keep that in mind, brothers and sisters, we shall press on in unity. If we keep in mind just how deep our bond runs, we shall see it flourishing in our churches. Lastly, let me encourage you, if you are not in Christ today, if you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not a part of this communion of saints. I don't say that looking down upon you as though we're these holy rollers and we have this great right to be here. We were just beggars invited. But as of now, you are outside just as we were at one time. But Christ invites you in. He invites all. And he will take you and give you his Holy Spirit and unite you to himself and give you life, life forevermore. And you shall be one of us, one of the brethren who dwell together in unity. And that is offered to all of us here today. Let's pray. Father, we just marvel. Words fail to capture so many things, Father, that you would take those who rebel and hate you and pardon us and unite us to yourself, to give us a spiritual union with the second person of the Trinity and thereby with the Father and the Spirit as well. We marvel at the beauty of your church, that you have called us to such a holy, joyful fellowship. Oh, Father, would you impress upon us the depth of just how deeply we are bonded together? Would you help us to nourish and cultivate that? In Jesus' name.